Hi, I'm Amy Porter, and this is my podcast. My mission is to show people how to empower themselves through music, business, and media. I try to see as clearly as possible how I can help. I showcase the music that I've played and the people I've met along the way. I'm a wife and a stepmom. You might know me as a professor, a performer, a producer, a publisher, a recording artist. I'm the founder of a couple of nonprofits. Welcome in to my Porter Flute Pod. Well, thanks, everybody. Welcome to Porter Flute Pod. This is season three, and it's episode eight story time with my friend from Juilliard in the 80s, Lowell Lieberman. We had such a great talk, and this is the time when I get to feature my performance of his Sonata for Flute and Piano. It's a performance with Chachi Su, and it's from Kaohsiung, Taiwan. This is the first movement, and it's just in front of, I think, almost 800 people. I'm not kidding. Those audiences in Taiwan, they're the best. Joining me in the podcast, asking questions and co-producing are Alan J. Tomasetti and Justine Zedke. Welcome to Porter Flute Pod. We're so happy you're here. Lowell Lieberman is one of America's most frequently performed and recorded living composers. He has written over 130 works in all genres, several of which have gone on to become standard repertoire for their instruments, such as his Sonata for Flute and Piano and Gargoyles for Piano, each of which have been recorded over 20 times. He has been commissioned by a wide array of ensembles and instrumentalists, including the Philadelphia Orchestra, Emerson Quartet, and flutists Sir James Galway. His full-length ballet Frankenstein was co-commissioned by London's Royal Ballet and the San Francisco Ballet. Mr. Lieberman's written two full-length operas, both enthusiastically received at their premieres, The Picture of Dorian Gray and Miss Lonely Hearts. That was after the novel by Nathaniel West commissioned by the Juilliard School to celebrate its 100th anniversary. Mr. Lieberman served as composer in residence for the Dallas Symphony Orchestra for four years, a role he also pursued with the Pacific Music Festival in Sapporo, Japan, the Saratoga Performing Arts Center, and many other organizations. He joined the composition faculty of Manus School of Music of the New School in 2012, where he founded the Manus American Composers Ensemble. It's devoted to performing works of living American composers. He was appointed the head of Manus's composition department the following year. Among his many awards are a Charles Ives Fellowship from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, awards from ASCAP and BMI, and a Grammy nomination. He was the first winner of the Van Cliburn Invitational Composers Competition, and in 2014 became the inaugural recipient of the Virgil Thompson Award for Vocal Composition. Lowell Lieberman's debut solo piano recording is being released on the Steinway and Sons label in conjunction with his 60th birthday. The two-CD set 
consists of complex repertoire irresistibly written for the piano, a composer's program. His new double album on the Steinway label is called Personal Demons, and it's an immaculately curated program of works that have inspired and shaped Lieberman's musical career, framed by three of Lieberman's own pieces that have special significance for him. My dear friend, Lowell, welcome to Porter Flute Pod. It's my pleasure to have you. I thought of some great stories to talk about uh, remembering you at Juilliard and how I met you and how gracious you were at helping me get the flute sonata worked up for the National Flute Association Convention in 1990. So um, I first want to just remembering you sitting on the floor of the fourth floor of Juilliard. Can you talk about that? You, it was you and Bill Wolfram and, and Andreas Hefliger, and you all just would sit there waiting for practice rooms because it's a big thing right now. Our school is overpopulated and everyone needs a practice room. And I'm thinking back in the Juilliard days, wow, like I had to wait for a practice room forever. And I saw all these people, like we all hung out, right? Yeah, I mean, the fourth floor was where it all happened. You know, that that was, an, and uh, let me see, I was at Juilliard from 1979 until 87. Uh, I, I ended up doing all three degrees there. And so, it, you know, it, <clears throat> it became uh, like a home, I think, for all of us. And, and boy, the fourth floor, well, the fourth floor and the cafeteria were kind of the, the heart of that home, even though, even though the food at the cafeteria was truly awful. Um, yes, we had to step over the dancers to get there. Do you remember that? Yes, absolutely. The dancers were always stretching in the lounge, and exactly. yes, one had to exactly step over them to, mm-hmm. get, to get to your lunch. And then they made room for the financial aid office window, and when they did that, that was my work study, and so I got to see everyone. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you all remember, like, going to the cafeteria, oh, there's Porter sitting in financial aid. <laughs> I do remember that actually. I do remember that. Boy, but you know, it's it's amazing, isn't it, how time flies? And and I mean, we haven't seen each other in person in, in how many years? Um, it's been a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, yet I feel like that time hasn't gone by and and you know, I know you just as well as I knew you back then. Well, I think when you bond at that age and I see my students bonding with their colleagues, and I'm sure you see it at Manus, you know that in the future, those guys are going to have each other's backs. They're going to perform each other's works. Yeah. yeah. Sure. We pretty much ran the building, though, in the early 80s, I think, all, all of us there at Juilliard. Uh, it was a, a bit of a wild, wild west. But it was also, when you think of the people who came out of that class when we were there, it's just amazing. I mean... You know, people from like, I don't know, Andrew Litton and Renee Fleming and Stephen Huff and Wynton Marsalis and just Jackie Parker. Jackie you. Parker. I mean, the, the names, the list is endless of, of people who had major, major, major careers or have major careers, you know, so. Um, and the teachers, 
the yeah. legends. Yeah. The legends who were there, and but waiting for the practice rooms and smelling the smoke. Oh my gosh, cigarettes were everywhere. Of course, I, I had to walk through all that smoke, but y'all just polluted that fourth floor. It still smells like cigarettes. Smoked like, <laughs> I smoked like a fish drinks water back then. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I used to I used to smoke uh, unfiltered Turkish cigarettes. And I remember uh, when I would go for a composition lesson, uh, Persichetti and I would switch cigarettes because he smoked unfiltered Chesterfields. So we would switch our packs of cigarettes for lessons and smoke each other's cigarettes <laughs> until he came down with lung cancer and died. And that, that was actually my final year at Juilliard. Um, and he saw the year out, but I, I gave up smoking for a long time after that. Uh, then, unfortunately, I started again, and then the second time, uh, giving up was really, really tough. But uh, I haven't smoked in, in uh, oh, I don't know how long now, a, while, a long time. Well, it, those were the days, let me tell you. I remember after graduation, uh, did you have this feeling of now what? We talk about this on the podcast. All I was left with was the Mozart concerto I, I went in with and my degree from Juilliard, really, which didn't mean a whole lot. Were mm -hmm. you at that moment the day after I, graduation? I, I, will, I will never forget the feeling immediately after the graduation ceremony when everybody just kind of dispersed from Lincoln Center. And I realized I'm not ever going to see a lot of these people again. Um, and I felt like there was just so much unfinished business with certain people that I didn't know that well or something. And then also the realization that you're on your own, buddy, now. And, and that kind of felt like a huge rug pulled out from under me. And it's, it's a scary and um, it's, it's a scary feeling. And, but everybody has to go through that. Everybody graduates and everybody enters the real world. Mm -hmm. uh, and that entry, I mean, that entry as a composer, well, I mean, I think each um, instrument or each, each you know, um, um, discipline in the music profession it's a different kind of scary. The scariness has come in, in different ways, but as a composer, um, you know, it's like, God, what do I do now? And, you know, besides just keep on writing, you know, how do I rustle up performances? How do I meet people? How do I keep that going? Um, and it does, it does, I think, take a while to get one's equilibrium after school. Yeah. What do I do now? Right. And so we just kept hanging out 
all of us. Uh, I was um, discovered, so to speak, by Joel Morgan, who, rest his soul, uh, was a beautiful human being. And he started a management with Henri Grenier. And they called themselves MG Artists. And I was one of their first artists. And I was just so happy that somebody paid attention. So the story is that I was hanging out with them in their place. I said, I need an American work to bring to the National Flute Association because I want to do their young artist competition and I need to bring it. And Joel turned around and said, well, Lowell wrote a piece for Paula Robeson. She commissioned it and she premiered it, but she hasn't played it since. And it was really just one year later, right? He said, why don't you take it to the... um, the NFA convention. And so I went to your house. I found my calendar from 1990. Oh, wow. (laughs) I did. But I was studying with Trudy Kane at the time, and I was going into Manhattan, and um, I literally just took a picture of this. Hang on. The date was Tuesday, August 14th, 1990. See, I keep all these date books. Wow. And it says 3 or 3.30. 29 years ago. Uh-huh. August 14th. So so I went to see Trudy at noon. And then at 3 or 3.30, I went to play for you in your apartment. Wow. That's a, <laughs> that's a memory. Well, I don't know if you remember. You saw me at, oh, gosh, Cami Hall. I played your sonata after that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think you were even at the piano the, those years ago just coaching me on that sonata. So could you tell about the genesis of the flute sonata? Because I think, so if I graduated in 87, I won that in 1990. We're talking 1990. You had had three or four years out there in the world as a composer. Yeah, well, a couple at least. Um, and I remember the, the flute sonata came about because Erica Nickrens, you, you must remember her, who then, then uh, of course. formed the Eroica Trio with, with uh, Sarah Sant Ambrosia and Adela Pena. And my roommate, Adela, of yes. two and a half years, yes. Yeah. Um, so Erica who is the daughter of Scott Nickrens, who ran the Chamber Music Festival in Spoleto. Uh, and Scott is married to Paula Robeson. Uh, Adela was playing a recital in Spoleto. And she, as part of her program, played my Bruckner variations for solo piano. And um, Scott was really taken with the piece and then asked to write if I would write a flute sonata for Paula and Jean-Yves Thibaudet. So Spoleto commissioned it. Um, It was one of my earlier commissions, and it was actually very little money. I won't say how much. Uh, and and they premiered it, and and the piece just really really took off. Uh, I mean, you played it at the convention. Paula played it at the convention, um, and then Galway started playing it, and then Galway commissioned my uh, flute concerto as a result of that. At the premiere of the flute concerto, Jan Gippo, who was the piccolo player in the orchestra, came up to me and said, I want to commission a piccolo concerto. And it's, you know, it was like the proverbial 
stone rolling down the the hill gathering moss. It just that's right. Know, one commission kind of led to another. Joan and Sparks, flute and harp sonata. And Jimmy commissioned the flute and harp concerto, and then he commissioned the first uh, flute trio as a Christmas surprise for Jeannie Galway. Oh. And, uh, you know, then, then yeah. other flutists. So the, the, the flute world has been great to me. My memory is, if it serves me completely correctly, 1990, flute convention, Minneapolis. I bring Susan L. Mossy with me uh, on piano. And the jury is, oh, Andrasha Jorian, I think Brooks DeWitter-Smith. Uh, I don't remember. I just I remember Andrasha Jorian being there. <laughs> so I play Martin Ballad. I play the commissioned work, which really wasn't great. And then I played your sonata to end, and everybody left. Theodore Presser said they had never seen anything like it that... Uh, you only had seven copies there, and they sold out in three minutes. There was everybody was screaming, "Where's this music? We want this now!" So your flute sonata has become a staple of our repertoire. So thank you for that. Really, can you tell me about the laboring of it? How were you inspired? That's a lot of piano writing in a way. But you pianists do that. We don't do that. The the um, you know, I wanted the piece first of all to be an equal thing for both flute and piano. I didn't want it to be an accompaniment. I wanted them to be absolute equals. And I think I was also, because it was my first flute piece, my first flute solo piece, I've of course written for flute and orchestra a lot, but I, I wanted to go against what was kind of my stereotype of flute music, which was kind of all that fluffy French conservatoire stuff. Um, and I wanted to write a really strong, energetic piece that would really show a range of playing, a range of, you know, dynamics, a range of, you know, um, color and everything. And I remember writing it and, and I went over to uh, Paula's apartment when I finished it to um, read through it with her. And uh, I remember when we, we kind of read through the whole thing straight, more or less. And when we got to the end, we were both just so excited, you know, um, and uh, uh, that, that was great. That was great. Tell me about the concerto. Why is that such a massive work? The first movement I keep saying is nine pages. And I only say that because 
I broke my hand and I was supposed to play your concerto in Taiwan. I had to email you and say, Lol, I'm sorry, I have to take Trail of Tears to Taiwan by Dougherty because I'm super familiar and I'm double-tonguing and it's fewer notes. But I had broken the hand in a part where I could, I could not play your concerto. It was just, it was just you mammoth. Know, broken so, hand and flute playing don't really go No, there. no. And okay, but so still I remember the premiere was it the premiere at the NFA convention with Brooks DeWitter Smith, or was it in St. Louis with Galway? It was in St. Louis with Galway. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, that that you know, as I was writing it, I was sending Jimmy faxes, you know, and oh. you know of of the piece, and uh, there was just one part where he said. You know, hey, Lowell, I can't, th- this part is impossible. I can't play it. And if I can't play it, nobody can. And Amen. So I said, okay, Jimmy, I, I'm happy to, to rewrite it. And so I wrote to, it, it was one of the variations in the first movement. And uh, so I wrote two different versions and I wanted to fax them to him. And so I called him up to get his fax number. And he said, oh, lol, don't bother. I practiced it and I can play it. So it, okay. stayed, it stayed the way it was. <laughs> wow. Um, and now you can have 18, 18-year-olds play your concerto. No problem. Younger, younger. Same thing with the piccolo concerto. You know, when I wrote that, it was kind of the feeling that maybe a handful of piccolo players could play that. And now, now kids in, in, in high school are playing it, um, which is great. I mean, but you know, that, that happens. The same thing happened with, with Tchaikovsky's concerto. Everybody said it was, you know, the most impossible piano concerto ever written. And then within a few years, everybody was playing it. Who was your inspiration in composition? And were there pianist composers who inspired you? And then all of a sudden you could play their music like Scriabin or Liszt. Well, uh, okay. When, when I was a student, if you asked me then who my inspirations were, I would easily say, you know, Bach, Beethoven, Buzzoni, Late Liszt, Shostakovich, Frank Martin, you know, nowadays, I mean, I still love those composers, but, you know, what I, what I feel now is that almost every piece of music inspires me either positively or negatively, that whatever I hear, I react to it as a musician, and that forms me as a musician. You, you mentioned Liszt. I've always loved Liszt, and he's a, he's a composer that, you know, it, it's funny because he's a composer that a lot of people love to put down. Um, and actually my admiration of him, uh, grows constantly because, you know, you, you think of list, you think of these billions of notes and it's just so difficult. But if you actually look at the music, it's so economically written and all those virtuoso effects are written with the greatest economy of notes and where he's getting the biggest bang for your buck. So he is, in certain ways, a, a, a compositional model for me. Um, I don't, I don't like wasted notes. I don't like unnecessary notes in music. Um, and the composers that I really love, you know, Ravel and Beethoven, 
whoever. They're just every note serves its purpose, you know. been um, a frustrated pianist, a frustrated performer, because I'm a very kind of obsessive person when I when I work on something. So when I'm composing, I can't think of anything except composing and I have to keep doing it until I finish it. I've never been good at kind of you know, dividing my time and doing a little composing and a little practicing and a little this, I, I just have to do something until it's finished. So that when I'm composing, I don't practice. And so in the past, I would try and catch up on my practicing in between pieces, which meant that my performing was pretty much restricted to chamber music, um, you know, either instrumental or, or with, with singers and uh, doing very, very little solo playing because I simply didn't have the time for, for the memorization involved for, and, and just, you know, um, never kind of developed that security of performing on my own. I mean, I wanted the music there. Now, of course, it's much more acceptable to play solo works with the music as a pianist. It wasn't for a long time you know, at least uh, when I started out. So uh, when the pandemic hit, um, all of my then, I, I had just finished two uh, commissions. Uh, my fifth cello sonata, which is finally being premiered in February by Chamber Music Society, and another flute work, my, my trio for flute, alto, sax, and piano which will be premiered um, at the flute convention this coming um, summer, I believe. And that was written for the Yargo Trio. So anyway, I had just finished those pieces. The pandemic hit and all of the commissions that I was about to embark on and a bit about to sign contracts, they all got put on hold or canceled. They were like, sorry, we can't do this now. We don't know what's, you know. So I had a totally blank slate ahead of me. 
And I decided, okay, this is the time for me to do that piano recording that I've been wanting to do. And, and I had been planning it, but the timing was totally, you know, uncertain that, that I didn't know if I would actually be able to do this in two years or three years, but I thought, no, I'm going to just practice for the next year and record this album, which is what I did. Um, and that was a really terrific, uh, experience and kind of, I, I got bitten by the recording bug now. And so I actually, um, recorded a second album, uh, this past summer. Um, and that is, is I, in fact, I just got a, a, a text from the producer who is the wonderful Sergei Kvitko who did personal demons uh, he just sent me the um, uh, second edits of this to, to listen to. Um, and this album is actually all music by a wonderful English composer named, contemporary composer named David Hackbridge Johnson. Uh, so I'm very excited about that project. But, you know, I, I do think as a composer, it is so important to uh, keep up with performing in, in some aspect, because it's very easy as a composer to lose, lose track of certain things that are so important in performance, even just the physical joy of playing certain things, you know? And, and I, yeah. think, I think in the earlier part of, of uh, well, in the mid part of the 20th century, I, I do think a lot of composers kind of lost track of that because for one of the first times, we had a lot of composers who were not performers themselves. And I do think that affects things in a certain way. Being a pianist, did you play any other instruments, first of all? Than piano? Uh, no, I've always tried to familiarize myself with instruments so you know i actually we have a house full of instruments here we have you know violin viola cello i had a contrabass until i threw it out it, it just it split it it was a really cheap contrabass from from amazon um arrived in a big box and after about a year, the whole thing just split and started falling. <laughs> so I put it on top of the garbage pile outside, which looked so sad because to all, you know, to all eyes, it looked like a perfectly decent contrabass and posted a picture of that on Facebook, which got lots of outraged comments. Oh, that's funny. Piece of junk. No, but we, I mean, we have a trumpet, we have several different kinds of flutes, a hurdy-gurdy, an organ, a harpsichord. The house is just full of musical instruments. And I always had um, uh, the intent to familiarize myself enough with them that I could do like Hindemith at least and play scales and things on them. Um, I it has not worked out that way. I do not, <laughs> I do not have the time. I have not had the time. Well, have uh, you gravitated towards composing for a specific instrument or is it pretty much commissioned based at this point? It's, you know, since I basically make that my living that way, it has to be commission based. Uh, you know, I don't have the luxury of writing, um, exactly what I wanted at, at any moment. 
but I actually also enjoy the the kind of challenge and surprise of being asked to write pieces that I wouldn't necessarily have thought of writing, you know, for, for that particular uh, instrument. But in terms of what I prefer to write for, um, I really like writing for everything, uh, but I like the variety of, of, you know, writing one kind of piece then writing another. I'm, I'm feeling the urge now to, to actually write more piano music because as a pianist composer, I actually haven't written that much piano music in terms of proportion uh, of my, my catalog. So I do, you know, I've wanted for, for years and years and years to write a set of piano etudes and things like that. And ho hopefully I'll be able to get to those. What are some important values and words of wisdom that you instill upon your students? Write the music you want to. Don't let anyone tell you what kind of music you should be writing or what kind of music you should like. And at the same time, you know, I, I tell them you, you can have strong opinions about what you like and don't like, but you also don't have the right to tell anybody else what they should you know, like or don't like. And I say you, you need to write the music that you want to. Um, and if you do, and if you do that honestly, you will find your audience. I mean, I also tell them no matter what kind of music you, you do write, there will be people who love it and there will be people who hate it. You know, so, you know, be prepared for, for criticism that you know, you will often feel is very personally based and very unfair. Uh, but it's just something you have to, to deal with. You have to grow a bit of a shell in this profession and, and inure yourself to all kinds of things. 
Have you noticed any trends in your students' writing? Well, the, the, I think the major thing is, you see, when, when I was a student at, at Juilliard, it was really kind of the heyday of Milton Babbitt and Elliot Carter, and, and composers were, were kind of um, examples of what we used to call the academic avant-garde. I mean, it was complicated, post-tonal, dissonant music. And when I started writing, and David Diamond in my earliest lessons tried to push me into more and more of an atonal, chromatic uh, uh, way of writing. And that was something I, I decided I'm, I'm not really enjoying this. And, and I started writing more and more tonal music, which disturbed Diamond greatly. And at the same time, uh, Persichetti was letting me know that he found what I was writing very interesting. And uh, that is when I switched uh, for my doctoral work to, and, and studied with Persichetti, uh, which was something that Diamond never forgave me for. Because Diamond is known for writing extremely kind of Americana tonal Yes, music, yes. But he did spend the fifth, late 50s and 60s and early 70s in Italy where he started writing very thorny uh, chromatic music. Uh, but then when he returned to the States, he kind of went back to, to a more tonal, modal way of, of writing. So it was it was a bit strange having him be so uncomfortable with that. And I remember the reading uh, with the Juilliard Orchestra of my the my first symphony. Um, the ending was this very tonal uh, chorale, these these major triads. And Diamond looked at me and he said, "But you can't do that. The critics will will tear you apart." And I found it so strange and sad that a composer of his age and reputation would care what the critics thought, you know? So, but I did, I did get a lot of flack back then for writing tonal music. And I mean, not all of my music is tonal. Um, I, I basically use whatever I want in a piece that I feel uh, fits the musical materials. Uh, but I got a lot of flack back then, and I continue to get flack from certain quarters for writing. Memories, uh, memories from the fifth floor. <laughs> oh, yes. Diamond was on the fifth floor. That's where I had my lessons. So when your students come in with their assignments and they're doing the avant-garde, uh, are you celebrating that? Are you directing them? I, uh, there's nothing wrong with avant-garde. Uh, there's nothing wrong with atonal music. There's nothing wrong with, with tonal music or any of it. Um, what I try and do with a student is help them find their voice. And just whatever, whatever voice that is, I try and help them make it as much better as possible. Because, you know, still there, there are certain things that no matter what kind of music you write, there are certain basic things that are the same for all, all music. Um, 
one of the things in those days, I mean, Milton Babb is, is um, famous and unfairly so because it wasn't his title for an, for an essay uh, called Who Cares If You Listen? Uh, and that, that title actually the, the uh, editor <laughs> put on it. But, you know, basically it was this idea of music that was just for these rarefied people in the know, the, the academics and everything. And so there did get to be a thing where if a composer was thought of as thinking of his audience, it became pandering to the audience. It became a negative thing. And one of the things I tell my students is, yes, one shouldn't pander to an audience, but Music, like all art, is a form of communication, and that communication requires an audience. So I think it is important to always think about what your piece is communicating and how well you are doing that. And no matter how complex the thought is, that it is your duty to communicate it as clearly as possible. And, you know, I, I like to say that, yes, I think of an audience, but when I do, I think of 2,000 of me sitting in the hall. And I write the music that I would want to hear. But I think it's very valuable to try and separate yourself from the creator and put yourself in the seat of someone who's listening, it, listening to it for the first time. And, and try and evaluate it from that way, from that perspective. You know, not, not, not from a fixed idea of this is what a particular audience wants, but just what, what information is being given to a listener. Beautifully said. Thank you. Beautifully said. <laughs> I think we only want our students to be more themselves and we don't need them to ask permission. Mm -hmm. Oh, so. but you know, you, you were, you were asking about, do I see any trends? And the thing is that, which I think is, is very, very good is the students are no longer afraid to write tonally. You, some of my students bring in music with key signatures, you know, okay. Um, which would have been, you know, you would have been laughed out of Juilliard in, in my student days if you, you wrote a piece with a key signature. Oh, remember um, that? I remember that stuff. We had to read it. Yeah, but um, the thing is, my students are writing in all kinds of styles. Some are writing tonal music. Some are writing atonal music. Some are interested in bringing all kinds of elements into their music. Others are doing a very more traditional kind. And, and I think it's my role as a teacher just to make them as comfortable in finding their, their voice as possible. I agree. Well, I want to first thank you for writing for flute as much as you have. Keep writing for flute, please. I want to thank Sir James Galway personally for the amount of support that he's given this flute community uh, through your music. 
And I just want to thank all the commissioners that have commissioned your flute music because without these works, Lowell, uh, our repertoire would be less. It is so full from your music. Well, thank you. And I can tell you one little uh, thing, but unfortunately, I can't be very specific. But there Go for is. It. There is going to be another flute concerto. Oh, <gasps> okay. And I can't tell you any more than that. No key signature? <laughs> well, I don't, I personally don't need signatures, even if the music is tonal. <laughs> Just because I don't tend to stay in one key long enough to, to warrant using them. Um, but, uh, you know. That's exciting. I can't wait to hear more about it. So uh, let me know when it, when it happens. I, I would like a, a copy from the publisher, please. Sign me up. Uh, <laughs> well, when, when, when it's public information, I'll let you know the details. Hooray! It has been my pleasure. I know people have been waiting for this interview, especially just because it's about the flute. We're such geeky flute players. We love composers. We love you. So thank you again. Well, thank you so much. Mm -hmm. And and no, I have to say, you know, the flute world is unique in, in one aspect to me. You know, more than any other instrument, there seems to be this enthusiasm for new music, for new works, this sharing of information. I mean, you go to one of the flute con conventions and it's a total trip. You're in a one of these hotels with 3,000 flutists and they're all running around talking about their head joints or about the newest piece they played or this and that. And there's just a sense of community. And they're always talking about, I'm playing the Lieberman. So you are the Lieberman. <laughs> I, I think there's usually another word inserted between the and Lieberman that <laughs> we might not want to say on the podcast. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> Thanks again. Thank you, Amy. This is the second movement of Lowell Lieberman's Sonata for Flute and Piano from Kaohsiung, Taiwan. I'm performing with Chachi Su. And the reason why you haven't heard it is because I don't let it out of the vault. You see, I leave about four notes, four and a half notes out. And then I get back up on the horse, so to speak, and I keep running. And the roar at the end of the concert is spectacular. So thank you, Lowell Lieberman, for being here. You can find more about Lowell at lowellliebermann.com. That's L-O-W-E-L-L-L-I-E-B-E-R-M-A-N-N.com. Tune in next time to another performance therapy episode. We'll dive into the fears of going into the field of academia. We'll be joined by alumni from my studio, and we'll discuss their journey on how they got there, what their audition process was like, and what it's like to become a university flute professor. You can find me at amyporter.com or porterflute.com. Thanks for being here. I'm so grateful for you.
Thank you.